0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast in which writers explore the dark seasons in their lives. I realised I'd said the series had come to an end, but I hate uneven numbers and this one felt a bit like unfinished business, as we'd had to cancel earlier in the year due to technical difficulties. So today I'm delighted to finally have Sophia Blackwell on the line. She's a poet, a radio presenter and novelist whose books include The Other Woman, The Fire Eater's Lover and After My Own Heart. Welcome Sophia. Thank you Catherine, thanks so much for having me on the show. No well thank you for being patient, I, uh, my technical klutzery got the better of me earlier in the year so <laughs> it's really good that we can finally talk and we've got some really interesting stuff to talk about today I think. Uh, we do
2: absolutely, so um, I, just, I was reminded of um, my own uh, dark season in, in my life which was January 2010 when I was, I was reading your book and that was one of the things that made me want to reach out to you after I'd finished reading Wintering.
0: I love that I mean I think that's one I mean you'll know this too but it's one of the massive privileges of being a writer that people make links to their own lives in in your work and all of a sudden you get to see different dimensions in what you've said I always find that so exciting the the kind of connections that it makes with people
2: absolutely it's a huge privilege hearing about those aspects of people's lives I, I never get tired of it myself
0: It's really funny, because when people write to me, they always say, oh, I'm kind of sorry for for writing to you. You know, like they're they're apologizing (laughs) for intruding on your time. But I love that dialogue. I I think one of the miserable things about writing is the isolation that you sometimes feel, you know, that you're sort of talking to nobody. And for the whole time you're writing a book, it's going nowhere. Um, But then afterwards, you suddenly make all these links. And I I just love that. Anyway, that's just my thing. so let's talk about that time because you've got a fantastic story to tell us today. So were you in your 20s? Is that, is that kind of right? I was
2: yes and my friends and I were talking over the weekend about sort of the years that we'd been happiest which was an interesting conversation because we're all quite different people and we all want quite different things out of life. Um, I was very happy from between sort of 23 to 25 uh, mm. things were going very well and my dad had always told me to look forward to 27 he said that was the, the highlight of, of his youth. Of course 27 <laughs> is also when That's all so the cool people <laughs> I know I know Like why 27? Anyway, I was very (laughs) excited about 27, uh, not least because um, I just moved to London. I just got a job in in publishing there, um, which is the industry that I have always worked in and still work in. But uh, getting a job there when I worked in Oxfordshire was a bit difficult because it was um, sort of that time where... Being interviewed for media companies was a very impenetrable business. so mm. You just sort of show up, and within about five minutes, you'd realise that you didn't actually want the job, and they certainly didn't want you. And you know, you'd bought some new shoes for this and all that kind of <laughs> thing. So it really wasn't going that well. But I came to London without a job because I wanted to live with my girlfriend. Um, we'd been together for about sort of four or five years, and uh, I was about to turn twenty-seven. So I remember my twenty-seventh birthday. And um, then about a year after we'd moved in and I was ready to start my adult life, you know, with the job, with the, the one bedroom flat and the relationship. You know, I thought it was all going to be smooth sailing mm. from there, but uh, it was not, unfortunately. So a year later, that all kind of came crashing down.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting talking about that time of your life, because so many of the conversations in this series have been about people's 20s. Um, and I there is a time of such great expectation but also such turmoil like everything is unfixed we don't really know who we are yet we're often kind of still finding our way in careers and I think that's true of our love life too We're, we're often in that process of seeking and trying to work out if this is it if this is the thing that we've always dreamed of you know
2: uh, absolutely and uh, yeah this is also in in some ways that the story of, of me finding out those things about myself that I I had rather arrogantly thought were very fixed mm. you know I'd always you know I always thought you know I, I had potential and I knew exactly what I wanted and who I wanted to be with and uh, what job I wanted to do and all of that was just entirely thrown into turmoil uh, overnight when my relationship ended
0: yeah so tell me about that it... It ended for a very specific reason, I think, which is infidelity.
2: Absolutely, yes, and sort of the idea of growing apart is an interesting one because uh, we did grow apart, but you know that that wasn't the main reason. The main reason was the the infidelity and sort of how I felt as as a result of that. Really, mm. um, I just felt as though. You know, there wasn't really any point to me anymore if I wasn't part of this relationship. Um, I didn't know what I was for or where my value lay. Um, And that was difficult. And obviously I had to move out. And um, I found a little uh, sort of... Effectively, what was a front bedroom in sort of, you know, a carved up Georgian house. In some ways, it was the poshest address I'd ever lived in. <laughs> uh, but it was still a, a very odd scenario because it, it wasn't really a flat. It was just some sort of leftover rooms in, in between, literally sandwiched in between two two couples um, who were lovely, two straight couples. Um, and But, you know, they had proper apartments, whereas I was sort of like the, the weird girl who lived in between them.
0: Yeah, and I, those those kind of places we find ourselves living in at that age as well are often not quite like home you know they're they're not the homes that we left they don't have all the the equipment and facilities so let's just let's just dwell with with that moment for a while because you said a really interesting thing which was that you you know you'd put all of yourself into this relationship and and there was kind of nothing left outside of it I think that's such a common thing that we do again when we're younger you know we we invest in that being a couple as if that can contain all of us and i don't think it can contain any of us really i know as i've got older i've separated myself more from my husband because i've just realized i needed to you know it's it's not enough even when you're in love and you're happy you have to have something of yourself i think
2: i agree and you you can't be everything to one person you can't sort of hold it together on your own basically and it was it was it was an interesting time because I had invested and in some ways you know I I was running around town performing a lot and my performance life and my writing life were kind of the only things that I had completely for myself they were the only things that I kept separate Mm. but at the end of it they were all I had so if I hadn't had those then I really would have been starting from zero.
0: Yeah, and it must be quite a peculiar life being a performer. It's a lot <laughs> happens in the evening, and yeah, it's a kind of interworld.
2: It is. So we're thinking about what's effectively a very liminal period. You know, living in yeah. this sort of glorified bed sitter with, as you say, you know, no no furniture or anything of my own, all of it sort of hand-me-downs from, you know, friends of my parents and that sort of thing. You know, I found the whole thing very humiliating, to be honest. Um, And it was, you know, the stamina of running around town. You know, I was hosting nights and clubs and pubs all over the place. And, you know, there were some wonderful times. I got to work with some people who are now very famous and who are friends of mine and Mm. all of that kind of thing. And, you know, I felt very enriched by some of it. Like, there were some nights in Soho which later in life I ended up running, but at the time they were a real sort of you know haven for me but that also set me apart from sort of my peers at work and that kind of thing because they had very sort of literally very straight domestic lives relationships kids and I envied that but I couldn't actually show that I envied that so they would be you know what did you do last night? And my answer would always be, you know, I was in a members club in Soho or I was in a (laughs) reggae sound system under the arches in Farringdon. And, you know, we we very, we had nothing in common. It wasn't that I thought my life was better, that I was better than them. I was very jealous of what they had. Um, But it was just that we didn't really have much in common.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of front to, well, I was about to say to life when you're younger, but actually when you're older too. But I think it's just that the front becomes different, you know, so there's all of that kind of, it's hard to explain what I mean like the the ability to present yourself as really exciting and really you're hiding something quite thin behind you know not having much money not feeling like life is very permanent um, but there's that pressure to make yourself look fully realized to everybody else because otherwise it would feel quite sad
2: Um, I did and as a performer I had to um, Mm. when I'd be sort of hosting events and that kind of thing you know there isn't room for that thin-skinnedness I always had to front so that was uh, that was quite taxing and again you know I can't really imagine myself doing that now to the same level that I I used to in the sort of running around town night buses sort of you know scrapping around sort of life but it did also keep me sane um, I have to say even Mm. though it was draining and, and challenging too.
0: And you're the centre of the universe when you're presenting and running these nights as well. People must have thought you're very, very important, which must have really helped.
2: I did (laughs) in some ways. I mean, I had you know really sweet people who would come up to me and go, you know, because they were quite challenging evenings in some cases. You're talking, you know, nine poets on top of a cafe or whatever. It really wasn't the uh, the glamorous life that I'd I'd been expecting (laughs) at all. But you know, you're there. You may as well make the best of it. So that's what I did. And I'd hear people saying, oh, you know you made you made this night with your MCing and I was like well you know it's it's not amazing but if this is what's on offer then
0: that's what I'm going to take yeah absolutely and all this time you were working in publishing as well Uh, I was
2: yes and like I said at that company I didn't really have all that much in common with my colleagues I mean we got on and we were fond of each other and and that sort of thing but I was just very aware of of how different my life was and you know I felt just sort of a lot of them were engaged and a lot of the talk was about marriage and and I am married now so I can you know I can bore people rigid as much as I want to about the details of my wedding favours but at the time I took it very personally I just felt as though they were sort of laughing at me. (laughs)
0: yeah and I think um at the same time they maybe seem a little bit boring it's it's that funny kind of mix of aspiring to have that life but also slightly despising it that I felt when I was younger yeah
2: I wanted to have the option of that life and to choose but um I I was you know my choices were very limited as, as they are when you know as you say money's tight you're single you're on your own um you become aware of how limited some of your choices really are
0: yeah, it's really true. And now I worry that you know what people think of me and how boring I am. And I, I, kind of, <laughs> I feel like I know me too. <laughs> I, I miss those days when everything was wide open. But um, well, there is that too. Yeah. <laughs> so eventually, though, you lost your job as well.
2: Uh, I did, yes. Um, My job was split across two offices, and eventually they they wanted people to stay in the office where I didn't actually work. It was not quite commutable, you know, those awkward distances that Mm. are sort of like two hours and something, and you just think, well, fine for once a week, but every day. And my colleague and I were both sort of potentially up for the chop, and I remember looking at her and thinking, I really hope you get this, not just because you deserve it more than me, but because if I get you know, if I get to stay, then I'm going to be out of here. I'm going to be looking for something else. So, right. you know, I, I, I it might as well be you. Um, and it was because she was a, a much safer bet. I mean, I, I was a bit <laughs> of a liability, to be honest. Um, I, I don't actually envy the people who had to work with me at the time. So, you know, can't really blame them in retrospect. But in it, what it way was it were was you a tough.
0: liability? I bet you weren't.
2: Uh, I don't know I mean grief does weird things to your mind really that's the only thing I can say it's certainly not something I have a, a problem with now though I mean I've obviously still got my kind of artistic flaky side but uh, my short-term memory was very poor I couldn't really settle to anything um and so you know, obviously I was doing my best I'd always been very conscientious but then I also you know, I started writing a journal effectively partly mm-hmm. because I couldn't really remember what was going on everything was so chaotic um and I felt like I was really living from moment to moment so to kind of Combat that feeling of you know everything being ephemeral and not really having anything to hang on to. I started writing about my life, um, which was very much a difference from the you know as you you know we're talking about kind of you know the the writer's life and the the Mm. pluses and minuses of it. I got feedback from audiences you know positive and negative every night of my life, but (laughs) I didn't really create anything lasting. So what I did was actually move into writing what became a novel, which was another journey that I went on that year.
0: I'm so interested to hear you talking about losing a relationship as grief, because I think that's a very unstated but very common feeling. You know, we, we move on from relationships, even if it's by our own choice, but we still grieve that that life and that self that was in that life. It's such a huge transition to make. And it's one that we are not really allowed to go on about too much, is it?
2: No I felt very much as if I couldn't talk about it so I could certainly couldn't talk about it at work and I couldn't talk about it while I was you know on a mic trying to hold an evening together so it felt as though there were a small handful of people I could speak to um, mm. and you know sometimes that that wasn't quite enough
0: yeah. so
2: hence the journal.
0: Does it yes yeah, thank goodness for journals and I think so many of us <laughs> have confided in journals at, at different points in time. Um, so where did you go from there? What, what what was that period of your life like? Um, well,
2: January 2010, it was interesting because that was that was my winter, really. And, you know, pre-COVID, our, our lockdowns were very short. And this was a lockdown that lasted like, a couple of days because there was this huge snow in January 2010. And I remember going to um, see a friend of mine uh, that night, um, a guy who i had met, um, and you know obviously I'd been a, what they call a perfect gold star for, for my entire life I, I had never been with a guy um, and on that night of the heavy snow I remember going to meet him outside the station and seeing him walk towards me and I just suddenly thought like oh god I fancy you um, that that was really strange
0: that's quite a surprise so,
2: it was it was definitely because we'd only been friends up to that point
0: right so this whole revolution's going on for you <laughs> I mean, it sounds very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit,
2: yes. Yeah,
0: slightly. So I've never heard the phrase perfect gold star because I've lived a sheltered (laughs) life. But um, that is, I mean, you must have been quite invested in that idea of yourself. It it gives you a kind of um, status almost, if if that's not unfair to say, that you're a kind of purity, a kind of ideological purity. No,
2: absolutely. I sullied my ideological purity.
0: So how, yeah, what... (laughs) <laughs> did that throw you into a, a spiral of doubt or did you just you know think way well I'm trying something new uh
2: it wasn't a, you know it was largely a positive experience so there was a bit of doubt in terms of you know did, did my relationship end because I have, you know, straight feelings? Answer, no, that, that wasn't really a factor at all. Um, or, you know, what will my future be like? You know, would I be better off with a guy? Again, answer, not really. Um, not really <laughs> prepared, you know. I mean, in terms of how I identify, the only thing I can say is that, I used to be, uh, you know, quite snobby about people who, you know, had both boyfriends and girlfriends or who weren't into labels and that sort of thing. Because you're right, the term gold star does carry a sort of perverse status to it. And I Mm -hmm. embraced that, you know, it was part of my identity. But it was also a bit of a relief to get rid of it and go, well, everything else is up in the air. So uh, why not this? Why not embrace it?
0: Those labels can be so rigid anyway, can't they? And so hard to live up to. It would be lovely to enter a world without these labels but um I think we're a long way off that yeah
2: yeah it's really interesting to see what's going on with young people today um when I was about because I knew I was gay from quite an early age about 12 and uh, not everybody you know again it's not it's not a competition but not everybody does you know most people it's it's later in life and I was just lucky that I had gay people in my in my life as a a child so Mm. I, I had something to compare my situation to whereas some people they just don't have that you know, point of contrast. Um, So yeah, it was a surprise. Uh, And when I was young, I embraced those labels wholeheartedly. But as you grow older, the more you realise, you know, it's about people and about how how these individuals make you feel.
0: Yeah. And so actually, is it fair to say that one of the ways you process that is by taking it into your writing?
2: Uh, It is and bits of it are still coming out of my poetry years later, which is interesting. But effectively I took the journal I was writing and I turned it into a novel called After My Own Heart which is very much you know based on on that time in my life and that sort of limbo feeling and sort of you know falling for a guy for the first time and it was you know it's it's romanticized fictionalized you know a heroine's probably better looking than me and uh, oh, she gets I'm up sure some more adventures <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I I turned him into a bit more of a romantic hero, which he, you know, acknowledged once he read the blurb on Amazon and uh, freaked out about it slightly. But in fairness, you know, everyone was a really good sport about it. But I was really paranoid because I had effectively fictionalised my life. So uh, when I, as soon as I had a publisher, I was effectively just kind of stopping in the streets and just going, oh God, what are they going to say? It, Mm -hmm. It happened several times a day for... For years and uh that they, they weren't really bothered um is, is the short answer so you know that's always what I try and tell people but I ran up to a couple of authors who'd also written memoirs or semi-autobiographical works and asked mm-hmm. just like how did you do it you know how did you get past the guilt um and they were all, well, you know, I, I wrote it in the hope that people like you would discover my book and, yeah. and that's what you did. And that was all I wanted. You know, the the reason that I write and perform is to kind of make people feel less alone, to, to give a voice to the things they can't say. That's always been what I want to do.
0: Yeah. And I'm really sure there should be a very specific psychological condition called memoirist regret. You know, that the minute that you hand <laughs> your mm-hmm. manuscript over to a publisher, and I'm sure it counts for autobiographical fiction as well, um, you get that absolute chill of terror about what you've said and what you've done and what the impact of that's gonna be. And it only increases in the weeks running up to publication.
2: <laughs> it does. I was an absolute wreck. Um but you know it's it's also good because I, I realised at the time like because my life was quite solitary especially in those moments of reflection and in terms of my relationship with the guy you know that wasn't a public thing nobody really knew us as a couple Mm. Um, and I was really worried that you know if we lose the few connections we had and if we don't see each other anymore um, which we don't then it'll be almost as if this never happened and to me it was too important to to let that go.
0: Mm, So it felt like a very significant moment even if maybe it wasn't the kind of thing you wanted to repeat over and over again fair enough I think
2: I yeah it's you know it can still be significant if it's not something that you know you're going to take forward with you to me it's just Mm. something that I carry with me
0: definitely so did that help to get you out of that lost period in your life or did you feel like that was almost part of it that it was part of everything being up in the air
2: uh, it did help me get out of it because, you know, I had obviously a lot of anger when I was writing it. And, you know, there were times when I also found myself, I'm sure that you'll realise this too, but sometimes when you're writing, you end up uncovering things that you weren't aware of yourself. So, oh, so that was sort much, of things, yeah. you know, <laughs> it wasn't just about relationships. I had to sort of give my heroine a bit more. To, to angst about because, you know, traumatic though it is, it didn't feel as though getting dumped was, you know, enough to sustain the book in and of itself. So um, she had sort of angst about her parents and her upbringing and that sort of thing. And that wasn't necessarily my angst, that was the most sort of fictionalized part of the book. My parents are still together, whereas hers are not, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are bits of them in those characters, and obviously that was a source of concern for me as well. But I found myself actually revisiting sort of, you know, what is it like to know you're gay when you're 12? What is it like to grow up feeling different? does some of this pain actually come from other sources entirely and you know so that that was interesting I found myself working through a lot of stuff um, through the process of writing it so it was Mm. it didn't deepen my sense of um, sort of being lost and in limbo It actually helped me dig myself out I also got another job and I moved in with some friends and you know it was it was a bit sort of dicey for a while you know getting used to living with new people and also applying for jobs and that sort of thing um so it was in sort of up and down period in in my life but you know by pretty much you know april or whatever of, of the following year april 2011 um so much more of it was in place including the book and so it was you know about two years after my relationship ended i woke up in the middle of the night once and realized actually i was over it um based on nothing but you know how that happens
0: sometimes yeah yeah and there is a time scale to these things and it's a year or two you know and and there's nothing you can do to hurry that there's a period that you have to live through and endure but you come out with knowledge don't you i think
2: Yeah, I I agree. You do have to endure it. But, you know, I'm naturally really impatient and, you know, I just wanted it to stop. I would have, you know, there were times when I would have done anything rather than endured it. But that option wasn't available to me.
0: Yeah, damn it. We're never going to solve that Mm -hmm. one, I don't think, unfortunately. No, I know. (laughs) Putting yourself into suspended animation for a couple of years would do it for me sometimes, I think. Just like let all of this pass and I'll wake up when everything's all right again, please. (laughs) you now live a really kind of very secure life actually i get the impression like everything seems very safe and controlled for you and <laughs> uh, how did you get there
2: um it's it's an interesting one um i had other relationships after that um of varying degrees of success um and i met my wife in january 2013 Um, there's a section in the novel where sort of based on me going to meet a journalist who was interviewing me for a a magazine um, called G3 which was a sort of gay lifestyle magazine I went to the pub Um, the journalist didn't actually show up because she was having a family emergency but I ended up talking to a much older woman who ended up giving me life advice and I thought well admittedly that was an interesting and slightly strange evening why is it so significant so I put it in the book and then I you know I finally met up with the journalist a couple of days later and I thought, well, she's really nice. I'm never going to see her again because uh, she's going off to America. But, you know, I hope that when she does come back, we can we can meet up. And then when she did come back to the UK in sort of, you know, winter 2012, January 2013, she asked me if I wanted to be hooked up. Um, and so I said, yes, I was planning on, you know, joining <laughs> Guardian Soulmates or something anyway that year. Um, so why not? And she sent me a picture of um, Helena, who became my wife. And I was like, looking at this photo, going like, "Are you serious?" Because you know, <laughs> I, I will, I will just have her right now. It's just perfectly fine. You know, hand her over; it'll be great. Um, but I hadn't actually been on a blind date before. I'd always been a bit of a serial monogamist. I hadn't been on anything like that since college. Um, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, as soon as I saw her sort of smiling in the coffee house in person, I, I sort of knew that, like, oh, okay, so that part of my life is, you know. Three four years later, it's it's over now.
0: I'm not going to let you skirt over the blind date that much. I want to know all the details. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? Was it awkward, or did it feel like coming home straight away?
2: It felt like coming home straight away. Um, it was also helpful that um, in advance Helena had been really, you know, she understood that it was a, a strange thing for me, and that I, you know, I wasn't really. A, serial data so she was she just wrote well you know if if it doesn't work out then you know perhaps we'll make a friendship out of it and I thought well this that's a really nice way of going about it but obviously I was I was hoping for more um so you know when we'd finished having coffee and she sort of pulled a dinner reservation out of her hat which she's still very proud of the fact that she did
1: (laughs) um
2: and the night went on for a, a very long time um I think I knew that you know Unless something very odd happened in the next couple of weeks, uh, which it didn't, then she was the person I was going to be with.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing to know that right away. Does being a little bit older change that? I mean I met my husband when I was eighteen, so Oh gosh. Yeah, I've got no idea what it's like to date as an adult. I cannot imagine it. Like I, we you know, we couldn't have afforded to go out to dinner or whatever. <laughs> that wasn't it wasn't on the cards. But I wonder I don't know if you could answer this it's but I'm genuinely curious, like when you date as two adults does it change the scope of it do you kind of understand the, the shape of a relationship more does it take some of the surprises out of it or does it feel just as giddy and strange as as when you're younger
2: it's an interesting one I had my first proper relationship at, at 17 which, which lasted for about a year um, which I, I think a, a lot of people do mm. and in some ways you know the it, it was a really positive relationship my first girlfriend was absolutely lovely and you know my only regret was that we sort of didn't stay in touch once once I'd moved away um, but yeah um, in, in some ways the the best parts of my growing like burgeoning relationship with helena did feel like that so it was kind of like being 17 again um Mm. i don't know really know if that answers it but you know no our our, our sort of maturity or whatever obviously we had things like you know helena had certain kind of like family obligations and that sort of thing that you know we we wouldn't have had as as much younger people um but you know for uh, the most part it was really like being teenagers again
0: oh that's so lovely i love that idea i love that you can return to that as a as a proper grown-up you know (laughs)
2: I know and as as we both put it we would have settled for a lot less you know there was especially (laughs) especially with the kind of you know addition of guys both of us actually thought about you know would men be a better bet you know but we're really not cut out for it it's you know we've saved men a lot a lot of headaches by (laughs) deciding not to go down that route I'm sure
0: I mean I I think that's romantic of you to both say (laughs) that to each other (laughs) I can't quite decide (laughs) it
2: might not be we just laugh about it now
0: yeah, there's that kind of practicality that comes in.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> it's just such a lovely end to your story. But um, before we finish, I am I have to ask a kind of nerdy writing question, which I'm really curious about, which is about you being a performance poet who also writes books. And so much of what you're talking about feeds into your books, doesn't it? You know, the, from the 12-year-old who knew she was gay right, right through to, you know, all of your kind of loves and... It, it all kind of comes into your very kind of frank, earthy, baldy poetry um, that just feels like realness coming through. It feels mm-hmm. like kind of real female conversation to me. Um, what's the relationship between the kind of performance poet in you and the poet on the page? And is there a part of that you prefer?
2: It's an interesting one, and performance poetry remains my first love because of its immediacy. Um, I do also love that you use the word bawdy. Uh, We've just finished watching (laughs) Harlots, so that's very much in my head, being the board. And, you know, hanging around in those uh, Her Members Clubs, which, you know, largely used to be used for that purpose, was was a big part of my 20s. And that's, you know, the the surroundings that I found myself in. you know, we're very much like that. Uh, but yeah, I like the immediacy of performance poetry. Some of my friends and I were quite sort of precious about the fact that performance poetry had to exist in the moment. Um, it was many years before I wrote any of it down. Um, it had to be memorised and it had to exist between the audience and me. There were no transcripts of it. Right. Um, so it was only when I realised that people would give me money if I wrote the It down and published it in the form of books. That I started changing my mind, but even then, I did CDs first. I had um, a homemade CD, which sort of was my first foray into into publishing. So, and I know that people still buy them, weirdly. Um, But yeah, when when it comes to like the really extreme stuff, like the blood and guts, the things that you can't be nice about, I still return to spoken word because it's you know, it's crude, it's out there. There's you know, I'd like to think there's some finesse to it in the way that I do it. But another thing was that, you know, as you say, the, the book, when I reread the novel, I, found, I find again some of the people I was hanging out with at the time because of that performance side of me. And, you know, some of them are, are gone, they're, they're no longer with us um, or whatever, or, you know, I've just lost touch with them or they've died since then. And it's just been really interesting to look back at it and actually find them or bits of them in the mm. book. So it's like meeting an old friend. So there are areas where, you know, the, the two parts of my life intersect and are captured in the book so you know it's
0: it's kind of layers of your own life isn't it and different ways of thinking about it and presenting it that's so valuable to take it into fiction to perform it to you know write its poetry and and also you know you're you take your spoken world kind of practice into onto radio too so there's elements you know different elements of you coming out in different ways I think that's a great privilege as a writer to be able to do that.
2: Yeah I still very much get off when everything as much as possible being live but you Mm -hmm. know I am also an editor you know that that's that's what I do so it's it's, um, the kind of liveness and being alive remembering the line not having the book or the phone stuck to my face while doing a performance that the, the words exist in me and and they come out and it's the same when I'm hosting for somebody else or whatever you know I just I want to kind of capture that moment and to keep the vibe going and for them to have a the best time possible as, as an artist again that's important to me too so that is part of what I take onto the radio but yes I do also enjoy pressing the edit button afterwards as a <laughs>
0: thank god for that you know
2: yeah. I know as any self-respecting writer would because that's when the control freak side of me comes out mm. which with performance you are flying by the seat of your pants you know I've, I've done several Edinburgh fringes you know and, and not much holds any fear for me these days yeah
0: it's a baptism of fire.
2: It sure is, but I love the fire and that's one of the reasons that I I wrote the book.
0: Fantastic. And how has lockdown affected you then? Because actually the live arts have been very, very badly hit by by lockdown. Definitely.
2: um, I very much felt for my friends more than anything else because they had to experience that awful first two weeks where you're just constantly looking in your inbox and everything's cancelled. Mm. And and that did happen to me. Um, but, you know, on a much smaller scale, it's not my livelihood. I've, I've never taken that leap. Um, so I felt sort of grateful to have what I have. Um, but, you know, it hasn't all been plain sailing. Um, I've lost people. Um, I've adapted to working from home. Um, you know, and you know, Helena and I continue to be very happy together but you know five months together is is enough to make you think okay you know could this could this be better how can you know how can we improve things we don't actually want to be apart from each other but you know it's important to build in space for if we do you know I'm just trying to think you know what's autumn got on the cards how can I how can I make sure that I can keep some of the good things and the creative things from from lockdown because of course I, I miss live work and it may not come back in in the same way um, and, you know, if, if it doesn't, you know, that's something else that we will have to mourn and let go of and do something else because um, I'm not really up for the sort of half-measures sort of, you know, Zoom gigs mm. and, and that kind of thing. Like, they're OK, but it's it's not the same.
0: It's not the same. I think we've all got loads more adaptation coming. It's really, uh, I don't know, such a big transition to not... I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm an on-the-page writer, but I'm even used to having that contact with a live audience and having that live feedback and that feeling of contact, its it, it's gone at the moment. And it, it we, we're doing stuff over Zoom, but it's not the same. You know, you feel like the star of your own TV show, which is a very different feeling, and a feeling that I've never sought. I, I like that live response. Yeah, me
2: too. It's always been a big part of you know, why I do things in the way that I do and why performance has always been the the number one thing for me. So, yeah, it has been difficult to to lose that but i think it would be it's sort of in some ways it's a bit harder now to see sort of you know some of the the bigger writers or whatever being able to sort of not not quite resume but you know it, you obviously don't get any fear of missing out when nobody's doing it but at the same time i'd still find myself doing mm. gigs particularly when i was hosting you know, music events or comedy events or things that were a bit sort of like, well, it's not my career, is it? It's just something I do for the laugh. And I find myself thinking like, you know, I could actually be at home writing another book, really. Um, I haven't written another book in lockdown. I just want to say that that's not happened. <laughs>
0: oh, you haven't been unproductive in lockdown, have you? I know. It's
2: terrible, my isn't goodness. it? I almost, almost think there was something really traumatic going on. Um,
0: yeah. I have worked funny, out how it? to make
2: radio, though. So I've been making a programme a week and that has that, that has so been awesome. my creative outlet really obviously largely supported by other people but you know at, at the end of the day it's still me asking the questions so sitting where you are basically
0: yes yeah, so that's it I mean we're all just <laughs> I know really it is at the moment and talking to each other but I, I mean that's something I've definitely loved I mean it's kind of nice because this is going to round up my series to, to kind of talk about this stuff really but I started the podcast in lockdown because I just wanted to talk to people and I suddenly saw this tremendous opportunity to talk to all these fascinating authors about their lives and their work and That's been massive, massive fun. And I love the way we have all chair swapped and found ways to chat to each other and found ways to reach out and make new connections. That has been a real privilege of lockdown. And I hope it continues afterwards, but I hope loads of it goes away as
2: well. Um, I agree. And I love speaking to people around (laughs) the world as well. You know, I've had days when I've spoken to people Mm. in South Africa, in Brazil, in Florida and to all kinds of places. And it's just been like, you know, I I do want to to retain that because, you know, but it is difficult like feeling as though you need a pretext to reach out to someone. It's actually, you know, my friends who I want to to check in on a lot of the time, really. So, yeah, I hope a lot of it goes away, too. And we can return to, you know, those people who you usually only see two or three times a year, but who you now currently don't see at all, they're kind of more on my mind than uh, interviewing more celebrities, fun though it is. (laughs)
0: well that's a great place to finish Um, where can people find you if they would like to witness all of the wonderful things Uh, you do mainly
2: Twitter which is where I spend most of my life Um, but I do also have a shiny new website which is sophiablackwell.co.uk and there you can also come across the broadcasts of recent radio shows as well as links to my CV links to the books that kind of thing so there's the website and there's Twitter and there's anything relating to Out in South London which is the radio show that I currently host on Res and uh, Sefan, you
0: can join me there too. Amazing and I'll make sure I put all of your links in Great. the show notes. Thank you so much, thank you for being patient with me while I clutched up the tech and thank you for telling us such a, I don't know, real and <laughs> relatable, I hate the word relatable but I keep using it, I can't stop. I hate I, What I hate about relatable is it's reproduced in my mind like a meme and now I can't stop using it because it's ugly, but it's so useful. But <laughs> that's a side note. Thank you so much for telling us this, this just brilliant story. And um, you're and very welcome. Thank you for having me on the sessions.
2: I'm delighted to, to be able to speak to you.
0: And that's about all for this week's show. Thank you so much to my guest, Sophia Blackwell, for sticking with me despite my tech issues. And this really is the last in the series, so thank you all for sticking with me too. I'll be back in October with a fresh new series of The Wintering Sessions. Bye for now.